Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Just Stop Oil keep on blocking junctions and disrupting traffic, and the Home Secretary is determined to push through new laws which she thinks will stop them. But how much harder has the government made it to attend a protest? And what does it mean for the police, who are struggling to keep the public's confidence? David Mead is a Professor of Human Rights Law at the University of East Anglia, and an expert on the law of protest and public order. Welcome to the bunker, David. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. They've been dragged away from roads by members of the public. They've been vilified for throwing soup out of Van Gogh. Have you been surprised by how tenacious Just Stop Oil have been? I have been. There's certainly been a step up over the past couple of months. And I don't think it's just you know, just stop oil. I mean, it's a whole, I suppose, loose conglomerate of, of of climate activists doing a host of of different sorts of things. Perhaps it's just stop oil that have taken the news headlines in the last couple of weeks, month or so. But I mean, certainly XR, as of a few years ago and continuing, I think have stepped up the sorts of things that they're doing with a view. I'm, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not privy to their their discussions about tactics and strategies, but you know, with a with a view to being more provocative and deliberately so, and or certainly for XR, with a view to being arrested and thus using the arrest and maybe the court case, but certainly the attendant news coverage of arrests to, I suppose, to to, to stretch out the publicity. So they've they've got a deliberate tactic of of being arrested, or XR certainly have, and I think just stop oil just, yeah, have have as well. So I think we've sort of got a double whammy on their side, which is yeah that as a tactic, and in their view the necessity of of doing yet more provocative, more disruptive actions because that is would be their view the only way that they're going to get any any publicity you know, we, we, you know the, the the newspapers are not full of thousands of thousands of people taking to the streets that tends to get maybe minor coverage if anything when it all passes peacefully so i think they've they've they've, they've had a step up and, and i mean it's not surprising i suppose was to sort of follow on from you know people being grabbed out of the street that that in turn is going to cause discontent and annoyance and and worse on the part of people who are inconvenienced by it or inconvenienced at that moment. I suppose I suppose the point that XR would say and Just Stop Oil would say would be this is a temporary inconvenience in the grand scale of things as to what's coming down the line in 10, 20, 30 years. 
The police have been trying to preempt these actions. They arrested a few people who were planning to disrupt the M25 a couple of days before I'm speaking to you today. And the protest yeah. still went ahead. But take us through the law as it stands. What powers do the police already have to preempt these protests? Quite a considerable amount, both sort of historically, by historically I mean outside of the last year or so, but even in from the last year, uh, I think considerably more powers have been granted and will yet be granted if the bill in its current form goes through. So, that, so they've long had powers to arrest people for attempts for conspiracy, which I think is the conspiracy charge is what was being banded around in the press during the week for that. So that's when groups of people agree to do something in the future that itself is a crime or could be a crime. So there's been some consternation I've seen on on social media about moving towards a police state with these arrests for conspiracy. But I mean, I think they're very misplaced. The police have long had powers to arrest further upstream, if you like. But this applies not just to protests. You know, this would apply to, you know, gangs of robbers planning a planning a bank heist. They would have the powers to arrest them and wouldn't have to wait till they're inside the bank to do so. I'm not saying that this doesn't come at um, at cost, but I don't think it is a surprise nor a particularly new power that the police are exercising. And then they also have specific preventive powers. So there is a long-standing common law power to prevent breaches of the peace, which is predicated on violence, certainly to persons, possibly to property, but I think there is some dispute about that. So that would possibly give the police powers to have arrested some of the protesters. And they also have powers to impose various conditions on what would normally be thought of as traditional sort of staged marches and assemblies. But the definitions of those don't involve large numbers of people. So if a group of XR or Just Stop Oil or any group like that were gathering together and the police reasonably believed that there would either be serious damage to property, serious disruption to the life of the community or serious public disorder, They've long had powers to impose conditions. So this is in the Public Order Act of 1986. They've long had powers to impose conditions on that group of people. And if any of the group can be said to know of the conditions and more recently should have known of the conditions, they leave themselves exposed to arrest. So that seems quite a wide range of of powers to prevent protests. What are the sentences like for the people who do succeed in, say, blocking the M25? Well, I think historically the courts have been reasonably lenient. You know, once people have got to court and been, been convicted, courts have taken the view of civil disobedience as a, as a sort of an inherent right that citizens have. And so they've tended to be either suspended sentences or very, very low-level sentences, very, very few cases of imprisonment. But that, I think, has changed in the last couple of years. So we have certainly seen people going to prison for aspects of, of non-violent direct action. By non-violent, I mean not violent towards people. So we would include within that you know, disruptive and even quite seriously disruptive forms of political action uh, have attracted jail sentences. Uh, so there's been, I think, a marked shift amongst you know, some of the judiciary in the last year or so, perhaps, you know, affected by political discourses and narratives and or 
the general feeling that pervades the newspapers of public disquiet. Now, whether there is public disquiet, I think is a, a separate question to how the newspapers are portraying it, but they, they, they certainly could face prison. So, I mean, in many cases, many of the offences that people are arrested for could attract prison sentences, but the, the historic norm of the courts has not been to send to prison. But as I say, I think that that has changed, and so many of them could be exposed to, you know, reasonably long prisons. So, you know, public nuisance, which was put into statutory form in the recent Act, the Police Act that went through earlier in the year, now can attract a prison sentence of up to up to ten years. And is it possible for the government to effectively impose the sentence, or is it ultimately up to the discretion of the judge? No, no, that, that, that's fully up. That's up to the discretion of judges entirely. So they, in most cases, and this is true of protesters or, or, or other criminals as, as well, criminals, I mean, people who've been convicted, the law tends to prescribe a maximum. And within that maximum, judges have guidance drawn up by by judges, judicial guidance on appropriate sentences. And so they could sentence from from nothing up to you know, a 10 year maximum. So the government tried to get through as part of the police crime sentencing and courts bill. Now the act, a lot of anti-protest powers, but Pretty Patel didn't manage to get all those through thanks to a rebellion in the Lords. And now yeah. a lot of those are coming back as part of a new bill, the public order bill, which Suella Braverman is trying to push through. What new powers is that going to bring in? It's going to be in quite a lot quite a lot of new powers. Whether those powers are needed, we can obviously discuss. But as you say, many of them were in the bill. There's some some additions that, that didn't fall. So so the, the bill had about seven or eight powers, and that fell in the summer. And there are now sort of nine or 10. So there've been a couple of additions. But in broad terms, it's creating several new, quite specific offences. So there's an offence of, of locking on, which is where you attach yourself to somebody else or to another object or attach another object to another object and an offence of causing serious disruption by tunnelling, so creating a tunnel or being present in a tunnel. Most of these, the trigger for almost all of these, I think, is is serious disruption. So this is the the sort of the touchstone in this new piece of legislation is criminalising serious disruption through a variety of sometimes general, sometimes bespoke crimes. Then there are sort of police ancillary powers, so allowing the police to stop and search for having a, a, something that you could use for a lock-on or being, or being equipped for tunnelling. Powers in relation to disrupting uh, major road networks or critical national infrastructures, which, which includes newspaper printing, and that sort of takes us back to the various actions against uh, Murdoch, probably 2021, maybe in 2020, when people sort of disrupted the the supply out of various distribution centres. Specific legislation to protect people either seeking or performing abortions, so what's what's often called abortion buffer zones, uh, are are, are being created. That's a new addition. That wasn't in the legislation before, before Parliament that fell. General powers of stop and search uh, with and some cases without having the having to have a reasonable suspicion that you'll find something so find an article that could be used to obstruct the highway or finding an article that could be used for public nuisance uh, and those come 
without reasonable suspicion is a much more intrusive power because that's that 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 doesn't involve the police to have any knowledge or suspicion of a specific individual and then and then more generally which is at the very end of the legislation the powers that i suspect most people are are probably most worried about uh, or those who are sort of aware of what's going on serious disruption prevention orders which will in terms restrict the ability of people to take part in protests dependent upon whether or not in the past couple of years they've either been convicted of a protest offence or in some cases not even convicted, but just have themselves seriously disrupted the activities of another person or or, or, or contributed to that happening. So that's quite an expansive power. Admittedly, that is that would be imposed by judges rather than by than by the police, but it is still has the potential for quite serious intrusions into whether or not people can can go on a protest in the future based simply on something they 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 have done in the past five years and perhaps not even been convicted for most certainly so there's if i've made if i dare say less of a worry for people who have been convicted although i think those powers are still fairly expansive but the the other power is that it can be imposed simply for within a two-year period having caused or contributed to the activities of someone else likely to result in serious disruption and so if you've done that twice in a five-year period you risk having various conditions so you're not (laughs) i think the government would say we're not banning people from going to protests but the range of powers that can be attached to that would include you know not associating with named individuals x well, in fact i don't even know whether they need to be named but not associating with x and y not being at a particular place being in a particular place not going onto the internet being subjected to electronic tagging so they're the sorts of things we once saw in with uh, sort of terrorist suspects uh, originally under control orders and then when they went being replaced by by t-pins terrorist prevention investigation measures where the the state has powers because someone is suspected of a terrorist offence to subject them to tagging effectively into curfew, not associating with others. And so what we've seen here then is a movement towards criminalising because breach of any of these will render someone subject to, to criminal proceedings, regulation by the state simply on grounds that they have been involved in seriously disrupting someone else's activities more than twice or on the second occasion in five years. I mean, that's that's quite an extension of the state power. This is sweeping stuff, isn't it? How worried are you? Uh, <laughs> what, on a scale of one to ten? Yeah. Uh, this, <laughs> I, I, I'm up near the ten mark, I think. On some, I think the worries I've got, I mean, the worries I always have with, with protesting are, are both, A, the law and what does the law say? And I think we need to be worried always about what the law on its face says, and we should be very worried here, but equally worried about how this either A, might be played out by the police and or B, subject to interpretation by people wanting to go on a protest. And by that, I mean the the worry is not so much or not always with the law says you can't do X, but with people thinking that they can't do x and y a chilling effect basically a chilling effect exactly right yeah so not going on a march for fear that they might be stopped and searched because they have got themselves there on a bike and they've got a bike lock with them 
you know, that's the sort of thing that's, you know, that's going around, you know, on social media. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think that's exaggerated. It is certainly a viable possibility for the police to consider themselves empowered to stop and search people in large numbers on their way to some sort of an action because they reasonably suspect they've got with them something that they can lock up. Because locking on is not defined with any level of particularity or, or, or specificity. So it doesn't have to be for any length of time. I could lock myself onto you, Ros, with my shoelace. That would count under the act. Now, if we all go to marches with slip-on shoes, happy days. But if we don't, and the police reasonably suspect that we've got shoelaces in our shoes and reasonably suspect that I might intend to use that to let, attach myself to you, not only have I committed the offence, because it doesn't require the lock-on to be serious or doesn't require it to be for any length of time, or I might be susceptible to a stop and search en route. And th those are the worries I think that we have. So one is, if you like, on the face of the legislation, and the other is, as you say, the chill that people might think, goodness me, I prefer not to run the risk. Thanks very much. opposition on this because Keir Starmer has back plans for longer sentences for protesters who you know, greatly inconvenience people. He was famously a human rights lawyer, though he was also director of public prosecution. So, you know, both sides. What would you say to the Labour leader about this? It's very difficult being leader of, the, of an opposition party seeking to get yourself into government. But I think he should oppose this bill. And, and he wouldn't be alone. I mean, I think this is the, this is the point. The bill... The, Senior police officers or senior former police officers have come out against it. Sir Peter Farhi was the chief constable of Greater Manchester Police, retired a few years ago, in evidence to Parliament as the bill was in committee stage, was very clearly worried about some of the terms and some of the provisions in the bill, worried about the effect on policing, on legitimacy, on consent, on intelligence gathering if the police are perceived, not whether they actually do, but whether they're perceived to be taking sides and put into a corner. Owen West, who I think was a gold commander with West Yorkshire Police, now retired and is an academic, very, very critical of the bill. Parliamentarians on both sides, so in the joint committee when the, the original provisions were going through, the joint committee is comprised of both Labour and Conservative and SNP MPs and Lords. And were opposed to the to, to the even to the PCS the, the bill as it went through in the act. So these powers are even greater. So I think Starmer would find himself with with considerable support, not from the usual suspects, but from people who are genuinely worried about where the bill both might take us and what it might portend. You know, and this is always the trouble when you're when you're legislating. It's fine if you're the good guys. But what happens if it falls into the wrong hands? And we need always to be vigilant of what happens if the other lot get hold of it. So I think he'd be in, you know, we would find uh, a degree of support amongst some officers. Uh, Her Majesty's Inspectorate, again in the Public Bill Committee, very critical of the new serious disruption powers. And indeed, the, the policing lead for the police chief constables, he he foresaw that they might need these powers, but for reckless and persistent offenders, not for the sorts of run of the mill, you've done this twice in the last five years. So I think there would be a, a justified 
there could well be justified opposition to the bill. I think there are valid human rights grounds. And as you say, he is a human rights lawyer. Now, on grounds of certainty, proportionality, overreach, the, the obvious risk in my view and, and, and the view of many, Liberty I know have, take, have taken this line, of, of, of disproportionate and arbitrary policing against certain groups and, you know, stop and search. You know, we only need to think of the stop and search rates, depending what colour you are, to think how this could pan out as well. I'd also be saying, why not wait for the new act to kick in? You know, what's what's the rush? What's the political rush? What's the political and legal need? So the new act has allowed the police to regulate one-person protests. Why can't even a single stop oil person be subjected to those provisions if they are thought to be, or thought about to be, seriously disruptive of the life of the community or, 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 or serious serious public disorder many of what they are doing would be captured public nuisance has been put into statutory form in that in that new bill in in the act many of the things that the people are, are, are that we are said we should be worried about would almost certainly i think be public nuisance there are other offenses as well aggravated trespass that would quite easily capture various of the actions that we've seen and I think also, if I were him, I'd be advising him that that his public pronouncements should not all be a one-way street. He should be lauding the value of protest within a democracy. If we can't protest and, and protest peacefully, and by peacefully I mean not violently, but that does include, peaceful protest does include serious disruption. There is a strong line of case law on this then all we've got left is a five-yearly ballot. So if that's what we want, fine, we should be upfront about it. But I'm fairly sure Keir Starmer doesn't think that, that there should be extra parliamentary processes open to ordinary people to make their views known. And if one person's making their views known, by definition, someone else is going to be cross about it because we all don't, we don't all share the same views. That's, that's just healthy. That's just what a democracy is. And I think you should be making the case for a human rights-based approach to policing a human rights-based approach to public order law, rather than to simply, please go home, we will sort, let, let, let the grown-up politicians sort it out. People are undeniably very, very cross, for very good reason, and probably the younger you are, the crosser you are. I mean, I've got kids in their early 20s, and they, and they are fearful about what all this holds. And it may be that they're mistaken, it might not be, but they're honest and genuine in their convictions, and sometimes we need to be we need to be jolted. And I think a, a human rights boast approach to all of this would do him great favours. But I don't think I'm his audience. That's the trouble. Well, so Keir, if you're listening, it's time to step up. <laughs> David, thanks so much for joining us. I thought this was pretty poor legislation, but you've explained just how bad it is. Thanks very much, Ros. Um, thanks for letting me you know share my views. I don't, I don't not everyone would agree with them, I know, but then that's that's what also what sort of political participation is about. So so thanks for the opportunity. Completely, thank you. At the bunker, we aim to cover topics in a depth you won't find elsewhere, but that costs money. If you'd like to help us keep going, please do search Patreon Bunker Podcast to support us regularly. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson. 
with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.